Let me pray for us. Lord, your word is scary. You are scary. And I do ask that you would open our eyes to see just a bit of your awesome personhood, your awesome being, that you would fill us with a a desire to see you glorified and honored and feared, not just here amongst us, but among all nations and peoples. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you all to turn with me to the book of Malachi. We are in Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, about three-fourths of the way through uh, the Bible. Last book in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament, as we mentioned. We started a sermon series uh, last week. We will go through all the book, uh, but it will be intermittently. We have first two sermons now, and we'll return to Malachi in a few weeks. Malachi, the the last speaking and writing prophet before 400 years of waiting for Jesus. Malachi, the man, comes to the people with a burden from the Lord, a, a weighty message for a people who were lackluster in faithfulness. Last week we looked at the opening of that message, the, the first five verses, and we saw that God opened with the declaration, I have loved you. In response to the people's inner skepticism about that love, God explained the the true nature of his love. God's love is is an electing love. He chooses undeserving people and he gifts them faith and a covenant relationship with himself. His love is a distinguishing love. He provides mercy in the cross of Jesus so that his people never have to know his just hatred of sin. God's love is a preserving love. He preserves the faith of his individual people, and he preserves the existence and the witness of the church as an institution. And God's love is a God-glorifying love. He opens the eyes of blind sinners, he softens the hearts of stubborn rebels, and he draws the gaze of selfish scoffers so that they can see his majesty and so worship and enjoy him for all that he is. But that declaration and explanation of God's love is not the end of the message. It's not the end of the story. That declaration actually becomes the context and the setup for God's next words. Not a declaration of love, but an indictment. There is a different tone to this text, and there will be a different tone to this sermon. In our passage this morning, God declares to the same people... I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in you. When you you read that, it it has to arrest you. When when you hear God say that, if if there's any amount of faith or openness to his word, you, you have to stop and ask, who is he talking about? Is it me? Am I in this category? Am I someone to whom God says, I have no pleasure in you? How does this relate to the love and the mercy of God that we just read about? Am I loved by God? Or is God completely displeased with me? How how do those two things fit together? There are all sorts of questions that we could possibly ask while reading this passage. This morning we're going to focus on three. Three questions. Two, the first two, are questions that we all probably should ask as we read this. Two questions that we should be asking ourselves. We can't presume to answer these for any of you. You'll have to wrestle with them yourself as you read the passage. 
And then one question that we will all probably find ourselves asking as we read. We might say we have two questions about how we relate to God and one question about how God relates to us. So I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn with me to Malachi. We're still in chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 14. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. I'll read the passage out loud together for us. God speaking. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now before we get to our three questions, there are two bits of context that we're going to briefly cover. Two ideas in the text that will help us wrestle with the main ideas. The main ideas, two ideas that will help us wrestle with the main ideas of the text. The first idea is the fatherhood of God, and the second is this name that we see appear, the Lord of hosts. So idea number one, in, in our text this morning, God identifies himself as a father. And now the way we usually hear and think about the fatherhood of God, at least in modern uh, American Christianity, is not what God means by citing his own fatherhood in this text. We tend to associate the fatherhood of God with intimacy, closeness, and paternal affection. And that's not wrong. That is a biblical association with God's fatherhood. However, in our, our culture, for various reasons, we tend to focus on that aspect to the neglect of another equally important dimension of fatherhood. Fathers are authority figures, heads of the home. They deserve honor and respect. For someone to be a father meant they were a leader in their household, in their family. They were a ruler. They were a master of a domain with all the attendant authority. 
This is obviously what is operating here in our text. It opens with a statement of fact and then the implied question, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Notice, fatherhood is being paralleled with being a master. God doesn't say, if I'm a father, where's my affection? If I'm a father, where's my love? If I'm a father, why don't you feel close or safe with me? He says, where is my honor? Where is my fear? Honor paralleled with fear. In the Israelite culture, there was an expectation that the fathers would be treated with respect and fear. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Not love your father and mother. You should love your father and mother. And in fact, love is bound up with honor. They're not uh, mutually exclusive. They are inclusive of each other. Honor includes love. But still, the focus, the key word is honor. That's where the note of emphasis is. The fatherhood of God is not being cited in this text as a comfort. The fatherhood of God is being cited as an indictment. God is not identifying himself as the people's father to comfort them. And it's important for us to hear that uh, since we live in a culture that kind of actively fights against the idea of honor to elders and respect for parents. Uh, Elon Musk famously said, My children didn't choose to be born. I chose to have children. They owe me nothing. I owe them everything. Ignore for a moment the horribly errant view underlying that statement that views life as a curse and not a gift. And just focus on how parental respect is so quickly done away with. That is not the biblical worldview. Fathers should receive honor from their children. Authority, provision, the gift of life that deserves fear and respect. God is a father to his people and he deserves honor and fear as a father. The point in asking the question is that he is not receiving honor and fear. The people are not fearing God as their master. They are not honoring him as a father. Rather, they are despising him in their worship. So God chooses to highlight his fatherhood, not to comfort, but to make the indictment sting more. Idea number two, a bit of context number two that will be helpful for us to understand is this name that Malachi uses for God so often in the book. He is called the Lord of hosts. And we could have talked about this last week or really any week in Malachi, but it fits well here, so we're going to do it now. Uh, Lord of hosts. This is a relatively common title for God in the Old Testament. It occurs about 240 times, and it occurs 24 times in the book of Malachi. That's about 10% of all occurrences of this title, the Lord of hosts, in the book of Malachi. Keep in mind, Malachi is a, a tiny little book. Four little chapters in English. In Hebrew, it is only 786 words long. It is less than 1% of the entire Old Testament. And yet, 10% of all the times God is called Lord of hosts occurs here in this small little book. Now, this cluster of using this name is intentional. It's always worth noting how the biblical authors address or refer to God. Uh, because these names are often so unfamiliar to us and their exact significance, they kind of become uh, amorphously familiar to us as just a sort of Bible-ease. Uh, they become general, generic, you know, generic honorifics that uh, we don't think about their significance. 
So it's worth spending time thinking about why Malachi calls God the Lord of hosts. Now, whenever you see Lord in all caps in an English Bible, that is a signal that what is behind that is God's covenantal name, Yahweh, or the older way of bringing that into English was Jehovah. And we generally don't use either in our English Bibles because of an ancient tradition that wanted to avoid misusing God's name. So they didn't say it at all. They would always replace it with Lord or some other word or title when they read the Hebrew out loud. And so when translating into other languages, they would actually replace the Hebrew name with a word like Lord in those other languages. And whether you agree with that practice or not, it is the standard convention. And it's important for you to understand that when you see Lord in all caps, that is not a generic title. It is a personal name. That's God's personal covenantal name, the name by which he makes himself specially known to his people. And that word, hosts, he's the Lord of hosts, he's Yahweh of hosts, that refers to armies, battalions, mustered men. It's used metaphorically in the Old Testament to refer to the stars sometimes uh, because before electricity, when you looked up at the sky, you would see a massive amount of stars. Now we see like three. But generally, you would see a ton of stars. The verb form of this word also means means to gather for war, to fight a war. It's used to refer to armies generally, but also in the Bible, it is used to refer to heavenly armies, spiritual forces, battalions of angelic beings. This way of talking about God is specifically meant to highlight the sheer, awesome, conquering force of his personhood and being. Yahweh stands at the head of an unimaginable force of spiritual power. He owns all the armies of earth and heaven. He is commander-in-chief of an unbeatable force. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when one of the disciples cut off the ear of the soldier and Jesus stopped him and said, I could call ten legions of angels. That that, that wasn't just talk. If he wanted to, ten legions of angels would have cut down every soldier in Gethsemane. Heads literally would have rolled. Jesus didn't have to go to Pilate in shackles. He could have walked up those steps on a red carpet made from the blood of the Roman soldiers, and Pilate wouldn't have been able to get out of his chair fast enough. Malachi prefers to use this name because it is an awe-inspiring name when it is fully apprehended. Malachi chooses to speak of God in terms of his leading of the heavenly armies. God is a person to be feared, to be trembled at. The commander of the armies of heaven is a father to you. You should fear him. So now, we come to the first of our questions. The first question that we should be asking as we read this text, asking ourselves, First question about how we relate to God, and that is, am I despising God in my worship? Am I despising God in my worship? The people in Malachi, that that Malachi was addressing, they were not fearing Yahweh of the heavenly armies. That's what he says about them. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. How God indicts the lack of fear and honor in the Israelites is really the substance of the whole passage. It's all about their worship. The Israelites were failing to honor and fear God in the way that they were going about their public ritual worship. God highlights their sacrificial worship. 
he addresses the priest, but as we will see in the text, this applies not just to the priest, but to everyone. And God even more specifically highlights the priest in chapter 2, but that'll be for next time. We'll talk more about the priest in detail next sermon. If you're interested in the priest, come back then. For now, focus on the fact that the failure to honor God and fear him was happening in their public worship, in their ritual sacrificial worship. That's big. You, you see, the people were failing to honor and show fear even as outwardly they were worshiping. Outwardly, they were maybe saying the right things, giving witness. It, it's, it's huge. It means that just showing up, just participating in some form of public worship does not mean you are honoring or fearing God. In fact, it is possible to worship publicly while despising God. Now, now let's entangle the logic of verses 6 through 7 because there's some repeated words and how it all fits together might be confusing at first. So, so look with me at verses 6 through 7. God tells the priests, you despise my name. Then we get another one of these questions where God gives voice to their inner thoughts and feelings. But you say, how have we despised your name? God answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Then they ask another question. But you say, how have we polluted you? God answers that one too, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. It it, it seems a a little circular. It kind of reads like, how are we despising? By polluting. Well, how are we polluting? By despising. Wait, I still don't understand what's wrong. If you want to get the full indictment, you've got to pay attention to the details. God starts by addressing the priests. The priests were the ones who served in the temple. They taught the people about the sacrifices. They guided the people through their small part in performing the sacrifices. And then they did the actual offering upon the altar. The people had an active role, but the main part of the sacrificial act was done by the priests. And so first God addresses the priests. They aren't the ones contributing the sacrifices, but they are the ones butchering them and laying out the sacrifice and burning it. And God says they despise his name, they treat him with contempt, without honor or fear, when they offer the polluted food on the altar. They ask, well, how are we polluting you? God mentions polluted food, and they ask, but how how is that polluting you? Possibly there's also emphasis on on the we there. What what are we doing wrong? We're we're just doing our job. We're we're offering the sacrifices that the people bring to us. How, how How does that pollute you, God? He answers, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Notice the main verb, saying. They are communicating something. Their polluting is happening in what they are communicating. How are we polluting you? We aren't the ones bringing these sacrifices. We're just sacrificing what the people give us. And and what does it matter to you anyway? You, You priests pollute me when you allow this, and you tacitly testify to every single person who brings a polluted sacrifice, sure, The Lord's table can be despised. You don't really have to care about any of this. No problem. It's all fine. Sacrifice anything. The priests were saying something by not saying something. By not putting their foot down when the people brought bad offerings, they were saying with their silence, the Lord's table can be despised. Therefore, they themselves were despising God. And they were helping the people to despise God so that everyone becomes complicit in this, priest and people alike. Everyone is despising God with their worship. 
The people by bringing what is lame and blind and sick, and the priests by not teaching better and putting a stop to it. The major point in all this is God connects how you worship with how you view him. Or rather, God points out the connection that exists between the two. How you view God is reflected in how you worship. And what was the specific problem with with these sacrifices that they were bringing? Verse 8 highlights and condemns the type of animals they were bringing. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Verse 13 reiterates, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. This is what you bring as an offering. What is the problem with bringing a blind or lame animal? I mean, it's going to die anyway, right? Or in the case of one taken by violence, which means an animal that was killed or by a predator or an accident, why can't you bring an animal that died accidentally? I mean, doesn't that seem fine? God wants an animal, he gets one, and I don't have to lose two animals, and we're all good. Number one, you you have to understand that in the ancient world, sacrifice usually was viewed as a a type of way of of feeding the gods, giving them a treat, uh, enticing them to act for you by offering them a nice gift. But the Bible is explicitly against this common view of sacrifice. That is not why the Israelites were taught to sacrifice in Leviticus. They were not giving God a treat. They were not giving him anything he needed or lacked. God says in Psalm 50, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Notice that God declares that he already owns all the cattle. He does not need us to feed him. He explicitly says he does not eat the meat. He does not drink the blood. But he still commends sacrifices all in the same breath. If you were at our Sunday school in Leviticus, you uh, may remember that there were many different types of sacrifices that were commanded. These were symbolic, participatory acts that emphasized two things, atonement and fellowship with God. Some sacrifices emphasized one more than the other, but they were both bound up together, atonement and fellowship with God. There needs to be payment for your sin. There needs to be cleansing. You are dirty, even if your clothes are perfectly clean. That's why the blood of the sacrifice is said to cleanse. Blood doesn't literally clean anything. But the sacrifice is a symbol of a payment for sin. And when there is atonement for sin, when things are made right between you and God, that means you can fellowship with Him. You can enjoy His presence. You get invited into His home to share a meal with Him. Some of the sacrifices you burned completely, but most of them you and or the priests ate. It was a special occasion. You were going to have the Christmas roast. You're going to fellowship with your creator in his presence and have a great meal. But if if you're going to kill the animal and you are the one who gets to eat it anyway, who cares whether or not it was blind to start? As we heard earlier in the service, the key issue is faith. Faith is an essential essential ingredient in the Levitical system. 
In the whole of the Bible's witness, sacrifice without faith, ritual without faith, public worship without faith is meaningless. God doesn't want those types of sacrifices. David confessed in Psalm 51 that sacrifices for atonement must be accompanied first and foremost with a heart that is broken and crushed over the sin that must be atoned. Only then will the ritual act have any meaning. Only then will the public confession of sin inherent in offering a sin offering be worth anything. The Levitical law prohibits bringing blind or lame or already dead animals because sacrifice was supposed to involve loss. That was part of the way that the faith was expressed in the act of sacrifice. I mean, nowadays we don't think of animals that we kill and get to eat as a loss, but that's just because we're mostly urban. That's what we do with those animals. We eat them. But the Israelites were agrarian. The animals that were killed were work animals or wool animals. They were your money, things that you could sell. Killing a healthy bull or lamb would be kind of like losing a tractor or part of your stock portfolio. You were supposed to offer the best of your flock, the best of your herd, because that is costly. Worship was supposed to be costly. Offering animals that couldn't work or that you would kill anyway defeated the purpose the Israelites were offering costless worship. That, that doesn't take any faith. Another way you can ask the question of, am I despising God in my worship, is, is my worship costless to me? Now, we, we don't bring animal sacrifices. I didn't hear anyone bring any animals to church this morning. The atonement offerings in Leviticus were meant to point us forward to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. He offers atonement for us. He makes atonement. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never offer any real cleansing. But God did provide a sacrifice that could provide real cleansing. And then in response, we do bring fellowship and thank offerings in the form of our lives, our love, and our prayers, and our public worship. Effort is sometimes a, a four-letter word in Protestant Christianity. But if we love God, we have to ask, how much do our efforts reflect that? Do my attitudes and priority reflect a fear of Yahweh who stands at the heads of the armies of heaven? <laughs> Offer that to your governor, God says, and see how he responds. It would be kind of like if the governor came over and you said, oh, sir, we, we made a fancy roast in your honor. And he said, really, you, you killed a bull for me. And you said, well, it had already died and we were eating it today, whether you came or not, but let's just say it was for you. That, that's meaningless and actually insulting. Notice how God responds. Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. I take that as a sort of sarcastic plea. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. It would be better if someone forcibly shut the doors of the temple so that you could not even make any offerings at all. It would be better for you not to engage in public worship at all than the thing you are doing now. That's how insulting their worship was. It would be better not to worship at all. Participating in some form of public worship, some form of public lip service to God, does not commend you to God. In fact, it can do exactly the opposite. 
For some people worshiping, even now, this Sunday morning, all over the world, maybe even here in this room, it would be better for you not to worship at all. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not sing and pray and read in vain. That's how insulting, costless, afterthought worship is to God. And it is for this reason that God says, I have no pleasure in you. Now we come to the second question that we should be asking ourselves as we read this passage. Do I care about the glory of God? Do I care about the glory of God? You see, the problem of the insult of costless worship does not just involve the personal faith of the Israelites. We actually see in our passage the main problem for the whole book. And it turns out that it all orbits around the issue of God's honor, his name, his public reputation, his glory. The whole book, there, there is a twofold dimension to the problem of not honoring God as, as one should. That lack of honor, that lack of fear, that lack of recognition of his glory is what leads to bad worship. But then failure to fear God is also the fruit of bad worship. Look and see how Malachi develops this idea. Notice what God explicitly says is the problem with this costless, faithless worship. We'll look at verses 10 through 12, starting near the end of verse 10. He says, I will not accept an offering from your hand for or because from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, you profane my name, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. Then again in verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished, for because I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, this wish, worship that the Israelites were engaging in was a bad witness to the watching world. It did not bring God glory. Your lack of recognition of God's glory is what leads to bad worship, and then bad worship leads to a lack of recognition of God's glory. It is a circle of depravity. God's people are not just supposed to exist in an equilibrium of selfish blessedness. God's people are called in order to be a kingdom of priests. In order, in, in other words, a, an entire people of go-betweens, of representatives for God. Jesus commissioned his disciples with an official declaration shortly before his ascension. We call it the Great Commission. It's the point of remaining in this world. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does our worship undercut that message? And that message is not a new idea. It wasn't a shock in salvation history. When God called Abraham and made a covenant with him, he promised Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it was to Moses' generation that God said, Now therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says the whole earth is mine and you are to represent me to all the people around you. You are to teach them and you are to draw them in because Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And Jesus has made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. God's people are entrusted with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. God's glory is at the heart of the issue. It's on both sides of the issue. The failure of God's covenant people to really see and treat God as glorious leads to bad worship, which then teaches the nations, which then teaches the people who see that worship that God isn't that glorious. A failure to glorify God in our hearts is both the cause of bad worship and then the fruit of bad worship. When we treat the public worship of God as an afterthought, when we prioritize everything else, when we give our financial and our mental and our emotional energies to all our other pursuits first and we only give God the leftovers, it sends a message to the watching world, regardless of what we may say with our mouths. We might say, oh, God is so glorious, and then we give him a distracted hour or two of our attention a week and we are annoyed by anything more. You know, so much worship in the world is not because we really fear Yahweh. It's because we want to look like worshipers on the outside. And the ironic thing is, that type of worship is totally transparent. The watching world sees through it in an instant. Our actions say something about how glorious God is. Our lackluster indifference to worship tells the world that the commander of the armies of heaven isn't that scary. He may command the armies of heaven, but he need not command our attention that much. Do we care about the glory of God? Do we want other people to worship him? Does our vision of his glory inspire our evangelism and our missions? Or does our worship hinder our evangelism by undermining it? Do we insult his glory by treating it as a small thing of no great importance in the grand scheme of our full and busy lives? Are we captivated by the glory of Christ? When we, when we read Matthew, are, are we in love with Jesus and the, and the way he, he has fulfilled all the Old Testament and the way God has ordered all of salvation history? Is that exciting? Do we want to share that with others? When we read Mark, are, are, are we impressed by Jesus' actions, by all his miracles? Do, do we hold him up as example? Do we, do we want people to admire him? When we read Luke, are, are we touched by his, his kindness and his mercy? When we read John, do we marvel that we have heard the word of God and we want other people to hear this word too? Or is it just a side dish in our life? Honestly, take it or leave it. What does our worship say about how we view Jesus? Make no mistake, God takes no pleasure in a blatant insult against his glory. 
My name will be great among the nations. My name will be feared among the nations. That is both a statement of the way things ought to be and the way they one day will be. I should be glorified, and I will be. And so, in your worship that actively, currently despises my name, I have no pleasure in you. So now we come to our third question. At this point, you might be asking the question, does all this mean that God no longer loves the people? And if you examined yourself and found that you have been despising God in your own worship, also doves and tails into, does this mean God no longer loves me? And we, we so often associate love with approval that that is how we might fe- first hear this statement, I have no pleasure in you. But as we saw last week, God's love is much deeper than approval of behavior. In saying, I have no pleasure in you, God is not saying that this means that the people are now outside of his covenantal love. But the indictment is still potent. Look again at verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. No pleasure is connected and paralleled with not accepting an offering. They're they're a pair. They, They help you understand each other. Again, the idea of accepting the offering appears in verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick. You bring this as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? The answer is obviously no. What you have to understand is is that word accept, this idea accept an offering, it's technical language. That word family appears many times in the sacrificial literature. It, It is the normal way of describing a positive response from God to a sacrifice. Right sacrifices are said to be acceptable. Now, don't hear in the kind of English acceptable the wrong idea. We, we tend to use acceptable to mean something like the bare minimum that's okay. Ah, yes, that, that is acceptable. But that's not what Leviticus means when it uses this word, and it's not what Malachi means. The, the idea of something being acceptable also conveys pleasure, enjoyment. That's why it's paired with another word for enjoy in our context. When God says he has no pleasure in the people, he is, commu- he is communicating his lack of pleasure. But more than that, I have no pleasure in you is synonymous with and defined by his not accepting their worship, worship, which is to say not blessing and working in and through their worship. Your worship is meaningless and will have no benefit. I will not bless and participate in it the way I have promised to in meaningful worship. It's not a statement of total covenantal rejection. Not yet, but it is still scary. I will not bless your worship. I will not do any of the things I promise to do in response to right sacrifice. I will not grant you assurance of atonement. I will not fellowship with you in this meal. You will know none of the grace that is meant to accompany this worship. I will not communicate the experience of grace or empower you for service. God is not saying they are out of the covenant. Their bad worship, remember, is occasioned by their lack of recognition of God's glory. But not seeing God's glory is not inconsistent with being loved by God because as we saw last week, God's love chooses blind people and shows them mercy by taking those who do not recognize his glory, who do not see it, and then he fixes it. That's part of what it means to know his love. He gives sight to blind people so they can see his glory. So it means that just because your eyesight is dim does not mean you're outside of the scope of God's love. God's love assumes that your eyesight is dim. 
His love clears the eyes and opens the heart. And part of the way that God opens eyes and fixes hearts is that he addresses the hearts of those whom he loves with stern admonishments like those here in Malachi. The admonishment should make us tremble because he is saying that even while someone may ultimately be within the bounds of his covenantal love, they will not currently enjoy the blessings that were meant to go with covenant worship when their worship is costless, glory-defiling worship. But even this, even this warning, even this statement of no pleasure is a word of love to his people because wake-up calls are an act of love. Remember, he's Yahweh at the, hand, at the head of the heavenly armies. He didn't have to say, I have no pleasure in you. He could have given the kill order. God withholding his pleasure, not accepting this worship, not blessing it, calling his people to repent before they enjoy his pleasure is an act of love to his people. And when his people are repentant over their costless worship, God will accept and delight in their still imperfect worship. Jesus' sacrificial death can cover our paltry sacrifices, and it does. Jesus' sacrificial death can cover our imperfect worship. We can have imperfect worship. All of our worship is and always will be imperfect in this life. It will always be tainted with sin and double motives and distractions. We will never in this life give God the full fear and honor that he deserves. Not until we see Jesus, Yahweh incarnate, at the head of the heavenly armies, and our faith is made sight. He knows this, and he is gentle with his people. I have loved you, he said, and he promised to make us see let us see Jesus as he is, a little bit more each day as we read and sing and pray and gather, daily a little bit more, a few more cracks in the light of the doorway, a few more glimpses of the glory of Jesus Christ, and then one day we will see the fullness. The standard for being in the love of God is not honor and fear that accords with perfect sight, but it is some honor and some fear that accords with some sight to have some heart response to these words, to have some care about not despising God in our worship, some desire to give him our best so that he will be glorified among the nations, so that the people who watch us will see a little bit of his glory, so that our evangelism and our missionary work won't be totally undermined by lackluster worship. We should tremble because persistent blindness that never clears up in any way that is totally hard to all of this is indicative of the righteous hatred of God. If we hear these words and tremble, that's a good sign. And we can have faith that Jesus' death will provide full atonement for our sin, including our imperfect, faulty worship. If you tremble at this word, if you put your hope in Jesus to save and forgive and justify you and then sanctify you, he will do it. But if we hear these words and do not tremble, we may yet prove to be outside of God's covenantal love. How we hear these words this morning is crucial. God is addressing a mixed crowd, if you will. Remember, God's principle of election assumes that just because you are descended from Jacob does not mean that you are saved. Jacob and Esau were twins, after all, but God chose Jacob. Paul makes that point in Romans. Not all descended from Israel, not all descended from Jacob himself, are real Israel. And gloriously, it works the other way too. Just because you are not descended from Israel does not mean you are not saved. God speaks to, this, to his people 
to a people gathered in his name this way precisely because he knows in this prophetic word that he is addressing both those whom he has chosen in mercy and those whom will face his judgment, regardless of how they identify themselves on the outside. The same is true of every church on the planet. There are those here who love God's glory and there are those here who cannot see it at all. And God's word is for both groups. God speaks encouraging words of comfort to open Malachi, but then these words that are meant to confront. And by these confronting words, he helps confirm the faith of his people and refine them. The faith that he gives to those whom he chooses. And to those on whom God's word falls on deaf ears, these words will stand against those people as a witness at the final judgment. They did not care about their creator. They despised his glory. They shut their eyes in the face of all the evidence of Malachi. Paul the Apostle said, make your calling and election sure. The biggest question this morning is how will we respond to this word from God? How will you respond to this word from God? How will we respond as Grace Covenant Church? How will we respond in our respective families? How will we respond as individuals? Am I despising God and how I worship? Is my worship costless to me? What kind of effort do I put in? Or, or do I put effort in making sure I do not have to put effort in? If my neighbors look at me, how glorious will God appear to be? Even as you come and gather and do churchy things, are you praising God with your mouth all the while telling people that God isn't all that awe-inspiring with how you order your life and treat Him in this worship? I spend all my time and energy and money on myself and my pleasures and give God the leftovers? Does my heart attitude in worship, my heart and my subsequent time and money and, and work commitments reflect a fear of Yahweh, commander of the armies of heaven? Do I desire God to be glorified among the nations? Do I desire him and his son Jesus to be praised everywhere? Do I desire all parts of his word to be spoken and heard? Do I desire my neighbor to read Obadiah and bow the knee? Not just am I content with God? Do I enjoy my personal relationship with him? Do I find him personally comforting? Do I care about his glory, his reputation? Do I care about Jesus' name and fame among all the peoples? Do I want to see him worship and adored everywhere? Let us pray that in hearing these words, that God will open our eyes to marvel at his glory and fear him in all our worship. For he says to those who don't hear, who don't see, who don't fear, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we would have to be delusional to think we have ever offered you perfect worship. As we heard this morning, if we say we are without sin, we make you a liar. So we recognize that, and, and we thank you for the indictment from Malachi. We thank you for the difficult word that you speak to your people. We recognize in it even as it is hard to hear, we recognize your love and your mercy. And so we do pray that we would respond, respond in a way that 
is marked out by your gracious election, your distinguishing of us. Grant us eyes to see, ears to hear. Increase our understanding of your glory. Increase our fear of you, our apprehension of all that you are and all that you can do, all that you have done and all that you will do. Be glorified in our hearts and so in our worship in the ways that we order our lives and the ways that we do church and the ways that we fellowship and read and study and pray and sing and gather. Be glorified, just a fraction of what you deserve in our worship. We do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his shed blood and full atonement and for his covering even of our faulty worship. We ask that you would accept it, accept it in Christ, and continue to purge us from all the blindness that still remains. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.